Thank you, Kayla, and good morning, everybody. I hope it is a good morning. Uh, I hope as well that you can navigate to page 15 in your packets. That's where we're going to be reading uh, and continuing in this little book of the Old Testament, uh, the book of Ruth. So as you turn there, I'd like to just go to the Lord, and we could bow our heads again and ask for his help as we begin and we continue in this book. Our great God in heaven, as we have just sung, would you teach us to number our days? God, this morning we, we come with a sense of anticipation and hopefulness, not because we're particularly alert, not because we're particularly much in and of ourselves, but we look to you, God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and I ask that you would come in power and have a powerful calling effect on this assembly because of the work of your Spirit. Help us to see wonderful things in your word. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So are you an optimist or are you a pessimist? I have never known how to answer that question. I've kind of low-key hated that question for much of my life. And wouldn't you know, that was actually the exact question that I was asked about 20 years ago in my first job interview my senior year of college. I was all suited up, I was doing this interview, it was actually not far from here. And as I sat and I thought I aced the rest of the questions, the interviewer said, one last question before you leave, sir. And he leaned over the table and he said, so Dave, would you say you're an optimist or would you say you're a pessimist? And I didn't know what to say. On one hand, I always want to say, you know, I'm, I'm an optimist because, you know, I watch the Disney Channel and stuff. And, and they always live happily ever after, and, and I want to say that partially because I want that, and I feel like I'm supposed to as a Christian a little bit on one hand. So I thought about saying that, then I thought, well, maybe I should say, I always want to say, I'm a pessimist because I watch the news. And I don't want to be insensitive to the fact that the vast majority of people, their experience in life is actually quite difficult. There's real suffering and trauma and loss and heartache as we heard last night. And I don't lack a catastrophic imagination, so I felt stuck. So I think I made up some nonsense. <laughs> I said, well, I thought about it for a minute, and I said, quote, I am a realistic sort of pessoptimist, <laughs> which confused everybody. And he leans over and says, we'll be in touch. <laughs> Worst interview ever. And I remember that, and I share that, because in many ways, I find that not only am I stumped in an interview question like that, I actually think that there are many Christians today, maybe many of you, who are doing a similar internal monologue sort of interview of yourself, and you're completely stumped at the questions that you're asking. I have found that Christians to, to, today, particularly maybe in times that feel unsettled, are silently interviewing themselves, and it sounds a little bit like, is my life fundamentally getting better and better, or am I in a, or not? Is, does God know what I'm going through? Maybe does God care, like we heard last night? Is it worth following God 
with the anxiety that I regularly feel and maybe many such other questions you ask. Those are very good questions and I find that most young people, most people who are followers of Jesus lack the theological tools to answer those questions and they're stumped in their internal monologue of wrestling in their own thoughts. And what wonderful questions to ask because the book of Ruth is about a family that has already answered those questions for you. At the top of page 15, we keep coming back to this quote again and again and again. Did you see it? Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer and may his name be renowned in Israel. Well, we keep coming back to that because this little book in the Old Testament is a book that is marching towards that great statement. The book of Ruth starts with loss, unspeakable loss. But it is a story of restoration and redemption. So brothers and sisters, Christians are not pessimists. But I would actually add Christians are not optimists. Oh, that's, we have something way better. Christians have hope in a God who redeems. That's the main point of what I'm going to say to you this morning. And I want to show you that this morning. Maybe you've tossed around that word redemption. God redeems stuff. And maybe you're not entirely sure what that word means. I want to show you what it means to be beyond pessimism and beyond optimism, to have hope in a God who redeems. Because as I read, this is on page 14, I want you to listen for how hope begins to build. Beginning from the top and reading through verse 13 of chapter 2. Follow along with me, please, in Ruth chapter 1. It's on page 14. We read, Then they lifted up their voices, and they wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her, and she said, See, your your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. For where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. And where you die, I will die. And there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also if anything but death parts me from you. When Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? And she said to them, do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. Now please, chapter 2, chapter 2. Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him, in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And as she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem. And he said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered, The Lord bless you. And then Boaz said to his young man who was in charge of the reapers, Wait, whose young woman is this? 
Verse 6, and the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, she is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. And she said, please, let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came, and she has continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. So then Boaz said to Ruth, now, listen, my daughter, do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field and they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and, and drink what the young men have drawn. And then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground and said to him, why have I found favor in your eyes? that you should take notice of me since I'm a foreigner. But Boaz answered, all that you've done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told me and how you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done and a full reward be given to you by the Lord God of Israel under whose wings you have come to take refuge. And then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me. You have spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. Let's stop there. I'd like this morning for us to take note of this story, to study it carefully from the perspective of Ruth. Ruth is a vulnerable person. Ruth has come. And look at the beginning verse, right? Ruth chapter 1, verse 14. This passage begins with everybody literally lifting up their voices to weep. Did you notice that? Maybe you want to see that word. They lifted up their voices to weep. But look down, we didn't read all the way through to Ruth chapter 2, verse 18, the last verse that I printed there from the section. We read that Ruth is lifting up an excess of provision. Did you see that? The passage starts one way and it ends very poetically, almost with a bookend of something else happening. It's a happy lifting up at the end. It's a sad lifting up at the beginning. So we're supposed to wonder, what on earth happened between the beginning of this passage and the end of this passage? Well, I'll tell you what, something has changed. This is the part of the story of Ruth where the sun begins to rise. This is the place where God starts to flex as the God who redeems. What does that word even mean? Well, I want to show you that there are at least three things that have changed. Christians hope in a God of redemption. If I were to break that down for you, please look at your outlines. Number one, the first thing that has started to happen is that we see that there is a faith that is despite circumstance. Because Christians hope in a God who redeems. There is such a thing as a faith that is despite circumstance. Take it from the top again. You'll notice that in verse 15, Naomi says to Ruth, look, Ruth, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. So return after your sister-in-law. So throw back to last night. The context of this is that this family is in the depths of despair. Maybe you can remember that. We enter in here after tragedy has struck, but we enter into this moment is, the, is that they're on the road between Moab and Bethlehem because, remember, the family has decided to return home. And I think here in this passage, the family is having one of the most emotionally heavy conversations because in verse 15, if you have a pen, perhaps you could underline or circle the word return, return, or the word go, or go back. 
Naomi here in this passage, think of the emotional weight of this moment, is saying to Ruth, Ruth, I think I'm going back to Bethlehem. I think you should go back to Moab. That's a heavy conversation. Naomi's saying, and we don't know why, the best thing for you, my daughter-in-law, Ruth, is to flourish. If you really want the Disney happily ever after outcome, you should return. And she's saying that to both of her daughters-in-law because of their circumstance, right? Ruth, as a widow, is an extremely economically vulnerable person. Ruth not only is a widow, Ruth is ethnically estranged. She's a Moabitess. So Ruth, as a foreigner, you're foreign. Not only with that, but the, the one true God of Israel, Ruth, you are a spiritual outcast. So if you really play the odds, um, I'm not sure Bethlehem is such a good idea for you. People are going to make fun of you in Bethlehem, Ruth. If you want a, a, a helpful, help, happy outcome, just go back. So can you imagine they're standing there on the road? It's the road to Bethlehem. Maybe there's one signpost this way that says Bethlehem, and the other signpost that way that says Moab. And under the signpost, Ruth speaks these words that illustrate faith. Can we read them again? Verse 16, Ruth says, where you go, I'll go. Where you lodge, I lodge, that your people will be my people and your God, my God. That statement, it is my personal belief, that is why this book is named Ruth. A non-Israelite person, it's on your sheet, anchors herself in the God of covenant promises. That's what it means to have faith in a God who redeems. It's being anchored in the God of covenant promises. Listen, I've had the very sad and stark opportunity to see someone drowning. I don't know if you've ever seen that. It's a terrifying experience of seeing someone in their raw moment of their distress behavior. You know, the, the, the grabbing after anything to, to keep you afloat. I've often thought of that because that is a little bit like I think what is happening in this story right here. Because almost every, chap every verse in chapter 1 uses that word go or turn or go back or return. It's a little bit of everyone flailing in their calamity. And this what do you grab onto? What is your distress behavior when times get tough? What brings about stability? Let's think about this. Orpah. Her circumstance is difficult, and due to her circumstance, Orpah turns her life towards Moab, and she returns to the familiar. And like Clint said, we never hear from her again. People don't name their kids Orpah. Ruth, despite her circumstance, turns to God. Orpah not sure what happened to her. Ruth, do you realize what she is saying? Ruth, the foreigner to Israel, uses the language of the entire Bible. I put a couple of references here below the passage. Check these out. In Genesis 17, it has a very similar language. Genesis 17, this is God saying that he will establish his covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. I'm going to establish an everlasting covenant to you and your offspring. Well, that sounds a little bit like what Ruth is saying. Ruth is using language that we call covenant language. Look at Exodus 6. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. How did Ruth learn about that? 
Jeremiah 31 says very similar. We detect similar language. I will be their God. There will be my people. Even in the book of Revelation, which is the last book of the Bible, it says, God speaking, I will be his God, and he will be my son. This is covenant language. This is the promises of the Bible. So please understand what Ruth is doing here. She's suffered unspeakable loss. She's in a most vulnerable position, and she's demonstrating hope in the God who redeems. See, she heard about the fact that there is a God who makes promises. There is a living God who attaches himself to people, and Ruth is saying, I want to attach myself to that. Like if it comes down to a life of calculated security, good chance of success, but no God or a life of difficulty, don't really know the plan, but I will know God who makes promises. Ruth is saying, I want to stake my life on God. And that's dazzling, but it is an illustration for us, my friends, of faith. It is an illustration for us that hope, the Christian hope, is not found in trying to fix your heartache. Christian hope is not trying to mend or to recover what is lost, and it's certainly not trying to just play the odds. You ever play the odds? Well, you know, statistically speaking, if I go to this school, I'll have a better job, right? Okay. Friends, don't obsess about things you cannot fix or control. The invitation of this book, it seems, this is Ruth's profession of faith, is to come and root your life in the promises of God. That's how hope builds. There is a faith that is despite circumstance. That's the first thing we learn from Ruth's perspective. That's what it means to have hope. That's what it means to have hope in the God who redeems. But there's a second thing. There's a second thing. And here's the, what I believe is the plot twist of the story. We see that there's a faith that is despite circumstance, but also, point number two on your outlines, it also says that there is a king who is over catastrophe. What has changed between the beginning of this passage and the end? It starts to go down in chapter two. Look back at chapter two. Look at how God enters the story. It says, Naomi had a relative, this is verse one, of her husband's a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz, Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, so let me go to the field and glean among the grain. So wait, the geography of the story has changed and we're no longer in Moab at the moment. Now we've arrived at Bethlehem. See, so the camera has cut, the scene has changed. In verse three, she sets out and goes to glean in the field. Let me read verse three. Something very important happens in verse three. It says, she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers, and she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz. Wait, time out. It says, she happened to come to this part of the field. Now, before you read too fast over that verse, you need to know that verse 3 is the turning point of the whole book of Ruth. It says right here that she, Ruth, as she went out to get food, because there's a famine, she happened to end up in the place 
where God had appointed to help her. And I think the author wrote that verse with a smile on his face because it's even more strongly stated in the Hebrew. It translates to something like, now happening, it sort of happened this way. God directed these people. God directed this family in the moment that they were experiencing it as randomness. Like it says at the top of your sheet that the Lord watches over the sojourners. He upholds the widow and the fatherless. And Ruth checks all of those boxes. So how is God making good on that promise? How is it working out that Ruth has come to this place and risked it all on the name of the covenant-keeping God. Well, God is making good on doing that, on protecting her. How is God at work in this passage? There are three things on your sheet that I want to show you. The first thing says that he orders all happenings. That's how God is governing this story. God, in this story, is ordering all of the little details according to his good pleasure and his divine providence. He's really directing this family, all of the details at the same time. I was trying to get the attention of one of my children a couple days ago. I was saying, hey, could you do this thing? And I was talking to him. I was speaking very, very loudly. The only problem is he was playing a video game. You know how this goes. Hello, can you just talk to me for a minute? And I swear, he must have, it's like he was just not even in the room, right? I even tried the, the, the old school parent move of like, you want a donut? You want some candy? And there's nothing, right? Nothing. Just locked and loaded. Well, the reason for that is because God has created us that we have a very, very limited focus. And especially if you're me, I really can't do more than one thing at a time. It's really, I'm sort of focused on a single thing. I can't even juggle. I find it very impressive, those of you who can juggle, because your mind is doing several things. You know what's even more impressive than juggling? God is distinctly different from you and I because God's full attention is given to ordering all things of the world at all times. That is what we see in this story. That's what the author is signaling to us about the divine providence of God. Look at how chapter 2 is written. It's written like a movie split screen. Did you see that? Verse 1, Boaz is over here. Camera cut, verse 2 and 3. Now Ruth is over here. Verse 4, now Boaz was over there. Do you see what is happening? The author has written this book in such a way to say that while at work was happening here, God was at work over there. He is split-screening and mingling two characters and two stories, and then tongue-in-cheek he's saying, and you know what happened to happen? Teehee. <laughs> this is a masterful way to say to you, brothers and sisters, even in your despair, our God rules. And let me clarify, I am not saying that God is the author of evil. I am saying on the authority of the Bible that God orders all things, that he is utterly sovereign even in the mundane things of life. Look at that quote that is at the bottom of your outlines. It says this, let us be clear Good luck is not enthroned over the universe. Amen? 
There is only one who occupies the celestial throne. This one wears the diadem and reigns on high. He alone presides over all temporal affairs. The Lord God himself is this ruling king. With unwavering clarity, the Bible declares the supremacy of God over all that exists. Heaven and earth are not run by a democracy. And to this present hour, God is governing over all of the affairs of providence. Moment by moment, he is causing all things to work together for the good of his people. God has not abdicated his throne, and he is not on sabbatical. Do you hear what he is saying? Brothers and sisters, he is saying that our God rules and that he is governing all things. He rules, and yet you and I are tempted to think that perhaps God is at work in some moments, but that in other moments, maybe God is not. You and I are tempted to think that in some moments, we could call them the big moments, you know, the big moments. And we're tempted to think that some are big moments and that others are throwaway moments. But friends, the message of this book is clear. There are no throwaway moments. And there are no throwaway people because of this thing called God's providence. God's providence means he is in charge of the big and flashy. And God's providence means he is in charge of the very, very ordinary, the mundane, and maybe even what you and I are inclined to call boring. This is good news. Because I am here... Because God has ordered that I am here. He orders all happenings. And what has happened to me has happened because of God's sovereign decree. And I say that respectfully because I know what it is like for God's providence to taste sweet. And I know what it is like for God's providence to taste bitter. But I want to invite you this morning to think back on the happenings of your life. And maybe even how you got to this room today. And I want to propose to you, there is a king who is over catastrophe. He's the living God. He orders all happenings. Number two, we also see here that he turns people's hearts. He turns people's hearts. In verse 5, Boaz has entered. He's another supporting character in this story of Naomi. Boaz said to his young man who was in charge, Whose young woman is this? And the servant who was in charge said, She's the young Moabite woman who came back. Look at how Boaz behaves in verse 8. Boaz said to Ruth, Listen, my daughter, do not go and glean in another field, but keep close to my young women. And he says, Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and and go after them. And I've charged the young men not not to touch you. Boaz has a conversation here with Ruth. And perhaps much of the details seem a little bit alien to you. Because they talk a lot about reaping and they talk a lot about gleaning. Can I tell you what's happening? What you need to realize here is that Boaz has come on the scene. And Boaz is acting in such a way where he is following Israelite law. What you need to know about reaping and gleaning is that when God set up the nation of Israel, God commanded Israel to leave a part of their fields where the tractor goes around the corner and it's just a little bit left on the edge. Leave it 
on purpose so that people who are poor and who are sojourning, they can go in the field, they can work, and they can harvest it for themselves. It's God's provision for people who don't have. This is Israelite law. And Boaz is introduced into this story in a time of anarchy, not in some sort of macho way. What we find is that the mercy of God to Ruth is that she comes into Bethlehem and she meets a man who is zealous for God's word and for the upholding of God's law. And that's amazing. Remember the context of Ruth? Well, the context of Ruth is that this happened when the judges ruled, where there's moral decay and social anarchy. This is when everyone's just doing what is right in their own eyes. And in chapter 2, verse 1, wait, enter Boaz as a worthy man. I think a question of this text, which I'd like to ask, it's completely silent on this, is where on earth did Boaz come from? Like, did he go to Sunday school? There wasn't Sunday school. What happened? Uh, we don't know. Again, we have a, uh, maybe a hundred questions about this. The text is silent on it. Is that all we know is that in the darkness of anarchy, God's spirit was moving and he stirred this man to love God and to love God's law. And because of God's invisible work, hope was not lost because he turns people's hearts. Not long ago, my dad got very interested in like our family of origin and family tree stuff. You ever done one of those DNA ancestry kits? They market them online and stuff like they're all cool. Yo, they're scary. Because we did a bunch of research on where like our family of origin is. If you go far enough up your family line, you're like, that's not good at all. <laughs> I think that guy was a criminal, like a notorious criminal. I'm descended from him, right? And it's the family tree doesn't necessarily signal to you all this stellar resume. If you study Boaz's family tree, you discover someone whose name is Rahab. Rahab is an outcast, least likely person to become an Israelite. Again, maybe more questions. Boaz comes out of nowhere. We know that Rahab was a prostitute. And I think one of the evidences in this book that God is ordering all things and that he has not abdicated his throne is that people are not simply the products of their families or their circumstance. Do you know that? Boaz grew up in a rough time. And you would not really expect him but brothers and sisters, there is still a king in Israel. God still is at work, invisibly. And there is still a king in this world. Maybe some of you would attest to the fact that I have no Christian upbringing. How on earth did I get here? You know the answer? There is a king. Maybe you're here and you're not a Christian and you feel your heart softening. And you're like, what is going on? Same answer. There is a king, and he orders all happenings, but he also inclines people's hearts. He turns people's hearts. And if you feel that softening in you today, do not refuse him who speaks. So he orders all happenings. He turns people's hearts. And I think most excitingly, look at number three. He vindicates her pain. He vindicates her pain. Again, from Ruth's perspective, verse 10. Please look at verse 10. She fell on her face bowing to the ground, and said to him, but, but why have I found favor 
in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I'm a foreigner. Here's Boaz's answer in verse 11. Well, all that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me. Time out. Boaz is drawn to Ruth. He tells her why. Why does Boaz, I guess, have a thing for Ruth? (laughs) He tells you because he has heard about her pain. That's amazing. What's happening in this story? How did Boaz hear fully told to me? I think it's in chapter 1, verse 19. Look back up the page. Remember what happened when Naomi and Ruth showed up in the town? Well, it says in verse 19, the two of them came and the whole town was stirred up and people were whispering, yo, is this Naomi? So wait a second. Ruth was walking into the city. Can you imagine the, 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 the whispers and the, the, the stares and the, 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 the funny looks and maybe even the gossip? It says the town was a buzz. That's Naomi. Who's the weird girl? <laughs> oh, that's Ruth. Why does Ruth look different than the rest of us? Because she's a Moabitess. And maybe she has a different skin tone. Maybe the news of that, oh, her husband's dead. Well, she certainly doesn't belong here. What is she doing here? Imagine the whispers and the gossip. It seems as if the way that, that, that Boaz got wind of all of this is that the gossip made its way through the town and the pain of the awkward stares and the sighs of feeling misunderstood and the teasing, what you could call the cultural fatigue of being in an alien land, it got back to Boaz. And Boaz says, he is not helping Ruth here despite her pain. Boaz is saying, I am drawn to Ruth because of her pain. And her disgrace... All of those nights where she wondered, God, what gives? The gossip got back to Boaz. And it was the very thing that God used to bring about her favor. Let me say that again. The pain, the difficulty, the loss. It got the ear of the person who had the ability to do something about it. And because of that, What was the very thing that God used to bring about her favor? It's spiritual judo. That's redemption. This is the God who redeems, and this is the God who we serve. This is an instructive moment for us, friends. Because I wonder if anyone here tonight could relate to that feeling of suffering. Or to the experience of loss like we've been talking about. Ever wonder, what do you do about it? Well, if God is the God who redeems, he loves to use the very things that cause us pain to bring about favor, then the answer is, friend, keep on serving God. If you are in a season of loss or panic, do the little things. Do the keep on working diligently. We could say keep on gleaning Move forward in what God has revealed to you. Continue to serve the living God and watch the God of redemption. Verse 12 says, The Lord repay you for what you have done. A full reward be given to you by the Lord. God loves 
to turn around your tragedy, the very things that are causing you pain, to bring you the delight that he notices that you need. God delights in using the very things that afflict you to bring about the joy that delights you. This is the God we serve. That's what redemption means. And we hope, we put our hope in the God who redeems. So there's a faith that is despite circumstance. Do you see Ruth expressing faith? There's a king who is over catastrophe. Do you see God ordering all things by his providence? And number three, what does it mean? And we'll close with this. We see in this passage between the beginning and the end is that there is a love that is greater than your loss. There's a love that is greater than your loss. Once again, verse 13. Then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and you have spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. Can I read that again? Wait, she said, I found favor in your eyes. You've comforted me. You've spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. I want us to think deeply about that verse as we end our time together. Because Boaz here is the one who stands with all the power. And Ruth is vulnerable and powerless. And again, from the perspective of Ruth, Ruth explains in this passage is that she is overwhelmed by favor, by comfort, and by kindness. Ruth in this passage says she's overwhelmed that favor has found her, even though her people are enemies of the people of God. That's a powerful moment. But friends, if you know the rest of this story, this is the beginning, not of a tolerable friendship. This is the beginning of a surprising moment of love. And Boaz's heart is so moved by the character of Ruth and the redemptive story that God is writing that Boaz is not interested in pursuing Ruth as his employee. Spoiler alert. Boaz is going to ask Ruth to be his wife. And see, what's going to happen is that the pain of this story, the sleepless nights and the unspeakable loss is going to be eclipsed by covenant love. This passage is a picture of covenant love that surpasses all of the pain that you have ever felt in this world. Why is this in the Bible? Friends, this passage is in the Bible because this is the story of the Bible. Ruth is signaling to us here, this book, that, that, that God, before God, there is favor, there is comfort, and there is kindness, and it is still available today to the enemies of God. Boaz is giving us here a preview of the person who has power and what it means for the person in power to show favor to your enemies. And the genealogy at the end tells us that the most powerful man who ever walked the planet is a descendant of Boaz. He is the Lord Jesus Christ. He is Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus came in strength 
And Jesus constantly, constantly interacts with people who are his enemies, and he makes provision for them. It's not grain for their bodies. It is forgiveness for their souls. And Jesus experienced the, the greatest famine to provide for our needs. The one who has all strength paid for our sins in weakness and in humility. So this moment of Ruth curled up saying, why on earth do I get favor? I am your enemy and I do not deserve it. This previews for us this reality that the people who bow the knee to Jesus, oh, God doesn't take you to be his servant. The Bible says God wants you to be his beloved. That God doesn't put up with you. In Christ, God delights in you and calls you by name. And the love of God is ultimately what is going to cause you an eclipse of your pain. Being taken in by God is what causes you to say, everything I have suffered in this life is worth it. Because I am known by the living God. This is what Paul says, where he says, I consider that the sufferings of this life are not worth comparing with the glory that is going to be revealed to us. Maybe he had Ruth in mind. Because everything that Ruth goes through is, comes to a head in this moment. And Boaz covers it. And in that moment where she is delighted in, all of the pain of her past is redeemed by covenant love. More modernly, Johnny Erickson Tata. Johnny just uh, celebrated her 55th anniversary of being a quadriplegic, which means she's paralyzed from the neck down. And this is what she writes about suffering and about pain. Johnny says, every tear that you have ever cried. This is at the bottom of page 15. Think about it. Think of it. It will be, here's our word, redeemed. That means God will give you indescribable glory for your grief. Not with a general wave of the hand, but in a considered and specific way. Each tear has been listed, and each tear will be recompensed. See, something so grand, so glorious, is going to happen in the world's finale that it will suffice for every hurt, it will compensate for every inhumanity, and it will atone for every terror. She says, you will see your daughter unfettered from her cerebral palsy. You will know the freedom of a pure heart. You will know your friends as God intended them, with no bruises, no confused thoughts, no mental illness, and you will experience love like you have never dared imagine. See, this is good news for people who have never been that, oh, most important person in anybody's life. Friends, this author is saying, oh, if you could see the glories that await the people who belong to Jesus, you would never complain again. And I'm inclined to think that the experience of heaven is to feel as if you are loved for the very first time. And that will be greater. It will surpass. It will make up for anything that you have lost. That's a theology of redemption. And so once again, please don't be a pessimist. Oh, please don't merely be an optimist. The invitation to you is to trust 
in the God who redeems. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, I pray that you would come close and meet the needs of each person here by your Holy Spirit. God, I pray that we would be delighted in our souls by the surpassing love of the Lord Jesus Christ. God, I thank you for redemption. Thank you that you are the God who turns tragedy and brings about delight. And I pray for my friends here that we would know this truth fully, increasingly, and deeply. We pray this in the mighty name of Jesus.